This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. Praise God. First Thessalonians. That's where we are. First Thessalonians. And we're in chapter 2 this week. And we've, we've seen an amazing record of a church that grew strong through persecution. And if you take time, if you look on uh, websites such as persecution.org and um, I can't remember, there's a couple of others that deal with the persecuted church, you will find that today there are many believers around the world who are heavily persecuted in their home nations. And um, uh, particularly when you get into some of the Islamic countries uh, or the communist, Marxist countries, uh, sometimes even when you get into a country that has a very predominant uh, religious class in that country, uh, such as in Italy, you'll find that there are many uh, Protestant believers who are persecuted by local Roman Catholics and so that's not a program by the government or by the uh, by the authorities as such but persecution that happens of believers in that situation of genuine believers by uh, the the Roman Catholics in that situation and this is one of the things to be wise about when you get onto websites like persecution.org is that sometimes when they refer to the persecution of Christians they're very non-discriminating because they want to highlight that people who associate themselves as followers of Jesus are being persecuted. And so they're very non-discriminating and you will see some of the groups or churches that are mentioned in those situations and you go, but they're not Christians. And that's not the focus of their, uh, of their um, mentioning there. Anyway, that's a bit of a distraction. The, this church grew strong in persecution and that's the history of Christianity is that Christianity has always grown stronger through persecution, always. And uh, uh, we learned that Paul successfully established this church in a very short amount of time. So the question is, what is it about Paul or what was it about Paul that helped him to do that in such a short amount of time and what can we learn and what can we apply to our lives in helping get other people established in the faith. And chapter 2 provides us with a bit of a picture of that, a picture of the ideals of being a leader, of the ideals of being a worker or of being a servant to the body of Christ. What are some of the elements that would make up that kind of person? If you want to be uh, a Christian who shares the gospel, the mission to the church is not only to share the gospel, go into all the world, but make disciples. And Paul says that in Colossians 1, him we preach warning every man and teaching every man that we may present every man perfect or mature in Christ Jesus. And so Paul understood that the, the real work of the Christian believer is that we would share the gospel and then not just walk away from the outcomes of that, but that we would involve ourselves 
in the lives of those who are converted through the gospel message. And we would begin to nurture and disciple those people. And I believe that chapter 2, Paul gives us uh, a bit of an outline. Maybe we could call it his follow-up program, um, since follow-up is is a word that is uh, distasteful. Um, you know, we don't want a follow-up program as such. You and I are that follow-up program. That's what God intends to use, is that he would use us to strengthen the newbies, to strengthen the weaky, uh, weaker ones. I won't say weakies, that sounds... Uh, a little disparaging, but to strengthen those who are new in Christ, that God would use you and I to do that. Amen? That's an exciting ministry for you. Oh, pastor, what does God want from me? Well, start with this. Start with strengthening new believers in their faith and in their walk with God. So let's read uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. To begin with, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impunity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, So we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. How much is that opposed to the modern faith and prosperity preacher, what we just read there. The the modern faith and prosperity preacher will spend uh, 20 minutes, uh, sometimes 30 minutes, doing an offering. And sometimes they will criticize the saints of God if the offering's not high enough. And uh, one of the ladies in the sitting in the congregation today shared with me a story one time of the the pastor who the offering had been done in the church where she used to attend, the offering had been done and counted. And when he came up to preach, he said, I'm not preaching until a second offering is done because enough wasn't given. And Paul says in this situation that he, we didn't come here with a pretext for, of greed and God is a witness to that statement. That's what he says. God is witness to that. Would to God that the church would move away from a focus on money to a focus on preaching. What a tremendous privilege Paul talks about here to be entrusted with the gospel. Look at verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. This is a tremendous privilege that you and I have. We often talk about, um, you know, as believers, we often talk about the importance of being stewards of our things, stewards of our money and our resources and all these kinds of things. And, and that's wise. But Paul says here that he had a stewardship given by God and that stewardship was that he was entrusted with the gospel message. 
And this is the uh, stewardship that you and I have, which is above all other things. That we would be faithful and true to the word of God and to its proclamation. This is the, the problem with the modern gospel message. It's right in this part, is that the modern gospel message focuses on a benefit that you can have. Don't you want to go to heaven? Don't you want to have peace? And, and don't you want to experience love and joy? And this may all be true. It focuses on the benefit and appeals to people to move toward gaining that benefit. Where the gospel itself focuses upon man's sin and separation from God and the steps that God took so that in Jesus Christ we can be reconciled to God. That because of our sin, we're separated from God. And as a result of that, we have the breakdown of our humanity and, and we have the mental problems and we have the physical problems, all these kinds of things that are a result of mankind's sin, not just individual sin, but all of man's sin. And that, that the gospel is about dealing with that in the person the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died for your sins so that you can have your sins washed away and you can be brought into relationship with God and know genuine freedom from the results of the bondage of sin, as we spent many weeks talking about. But every believer is a steward of the gospel and of the word of God. Your life is a stewardship of what you believe about the gospel. How you live, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. How you live demonstrates what you truly believe out of this book. That's what it is. And so many times we can be culturally Christians, and this happens in many different cultural groups, that people can be culturally Christians and they turn up at church on Sunday, but the rest of the week they're living for themselves. And, you know, we've um, been to Fiji several times and and, uh, shared the gospel over there, been part of impact teams. And and I promise you, you walk around the streets of Fiji and you talk to people they're open to talk to, they want to talk. And if you ask them, are you a Christian? Nearly every time they will say yes. Right? Nearly every time. But once you begin to press you find out that there's much addiction to alcohol and to kava and these kinds of things that they that they have themselves addicted to. But if you ask them, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Because my parents are Christians. Their parents were Christians. And we're, we're Methodists and we go all the way back to the Methodist missionaries in our family. I love the little and very simple saying, God has no grandchildren. He has children. And my children must come to being born again. That's what has to happen. Because they're not born into Christianity. They may be born into a home that reflects Christian values and teachings. But that's that's where it stops. They're not in some kind of covenant with with God because of Suzanne and I. They each have had to be born again. 
And so this is the entrustment of the gospel message that you and I would be true to that and not deceive the generations that come after us with some kind of fancy theology. Paul said to Timothy, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. So Paul says in verse 4 that God had entrusted a gospel message to him. And in 1 Timothy 1, he says that God had entrusted a gospel message to him. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says to Timothy, guard that gospel message that's been entrusted to you. And he goes on, he says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. 1 Timothy 6 verse 20 and 21. Timothy was expected to then take that which Paul had entrusted to him, in the, which, which God had entrusted to Paul and Paul had preached in Ephesus and now Timothy is the pastor of that church and, and Paul is urging him, guard that which has been entrusted to you. And then in the next letter to Timothy, Paul says in chapter 2 verse 2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There is a handing down to those who get saved of this deposit of the gospel message in our lives. And we're to be stewards of that. And this highlights a very important biblical principle to us, is that a steward is to be faithful. In fact, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he talks about that in chapter 4, and says, moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. And so Paul takes that stewardship of material things and he applies it to the stewardship of the gospel and he says, I was faithful in how I stewarded that that entrustment that was given to me, to you, God is a witness to this. An aspect of faithfulness and stewardship is a willingness to suffer. In Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 19, we see the story of Paul and Silas. It says, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, this is with the uh, one delivered from the demons, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews... And they are disturbing our city. The advocate customs, uh, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. This is because a demon was cast out. So they were being publicly beaten because people's Incomes were being affected by the preaching of the gospel message. But Paul, because of his commitment to the gospel, is going to be faithful to that. And as we know, when you read through the story, he counts that as a blessing. Verse 23 of Acts 16 says, And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. 
This is not, you know, a 21st century Western prison with air conditioning and a, a TV room and a mess hall. In fact, you probably didn't get fed anything nutritious unless someone brought it in for you just to get food. This is a demonstration of their faithfulness of the stewardship of the gospel. What what might God do through your life in the preaching of the gospel and what might occur to you as a result? I tell you, you and I don't know. As our culture is changing within Australia, there are coming into the nation influences that are not so friendly toward Christianity whether it is socialist and Marxist influences or whether it is false religions uh, such as uh, Islam uh, or whether it is social trends such as the LBGTQI++ whatever, the, this, the alphabet people who are, who are opposed to Christianity. They're opposed to it. And they have a, a social rhetoric and, and, and a violence toward Christianity in the way they oppose it. Adrian. They were abbreviated to Gilberts. Gilberts? Same so, well, different way around. Right. Yes. Oh, a, a fellow I listen to calls them the alphabet people and seems to be good to me because it, it forever changes. So, these... These kinds of social trends are becoming more and more aggressive and opposed toward the gospel message. Why is that? Because despite what they say, despite saying God made me this way, Scripture says otherwise. God loves me as I am. Scripture says otherwise. God loves you enough as you are to see you changed in Jesus Christ. That's God loves us despite the sinfulness we have, but not to leave us that way, but to see us come to a place where we would repent of our sins, place faith in Jesus Christ, and be transformed into a new person. I'm a bloke. My name's Lionel. I'm not a woman named Leonie. No matter what I, the derangement of my mind might say, Physically, God has birthed me as the person I am. And the problem is, is that when we then pander to people's emotional and, and psychological problems, we trap them in that sin. And so when the church then begins to say that homosexuality is okay, we then trap people in their sin. We're damning people in their sin by that. The gospel message calls for repentance. It calls people to place faith in Jesus Christ, to walk away from the old life of sin, no matter what it was. And, we, you know, we talked about one group of people. If it's a false religion of Islam, a false religion of Mormonism, we have to turn from that. If it's a false belief of hedonism or atheism, we have to turn from that, place our faith in Jesus Christ and walk with him. And the gospel deals with that. And Paul says he was faithful in that delivery. Verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, 
but to please God who tests our hearts. And this is the problem with the church today is that we're so worried about what people say. Do you mean God hates homosexuality? Well, that's a loaded question. It's a, it's what we call this dilemma of the binary approach that you give an either or circumstance to it. The, the simple answer is God does hate homosexuality. That's the simple answer. He hates it. It is a sin in his eyes. Does God hate homosexuals? He is going to judge them for their sin, for sure. But his love is so much that he would send his son to die in their place. So the answer is not a simple yes or no to that part of the question. And Paul calls, he says, we've been entrusted with the gospel. We're not watering it down to please people. So we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. God knows it's tempting to compromise things in order to win friends. But God does not bless a steward whose ministry is not according to the word. You might say, well, how come that church is bigger than this church? Or, or that's, that's irrelevant. Many of the New Testament churches that met in uh, the caves of Cappadocia, for example, and, and uh, in the regions of Thessalonica, many of the local churches that met in those places were very small groups of believers. Very small groups of believers, often just a family or two that met together to share a meal and somebody would, would try to, to teach something or they would get someone who's, who's had a message or a letter received from Paul and they would get them to come over and read that out. And that was a church. And the idea that big is blessed is not a biblical image. That doesn't mean that small is blessed either. It's completely irrelevant. The idea of size is completely irrelevant. In verse 3, Paul states that his his message was not in deceit or error. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. (laughs) It's like he's trying to explain things very clearly, isn't it? You know, Our appeal does not spring from error impurity or any attempt to deceive. We were sincere with you. It was the true word of God that Paul preached to the Thessalonians. His method was honest. It wasn't guileful. It wasn't baited. Um, You know, the the word um, there with any attempt to deceive comes from a phrase meaning this, giving this idea of baiting a hook to catch something. That's, that's what it means. It comes from this phrase that you'd bait the hook to catch a fish. And so Paul says we weren't, we weren't making any attempt to deceive you. We weren't trying to bait something to try and catch you. We didn't catch you with a false message. His motive was pure, not one of uncleanness. And his method was honest. Verse 5, Paul states that he did not resort to flattering people for personal gain. He 
if you've been around the church world, you, you've seen that before because you know of people who have attended churches and are wealthy and before long, uh, they're very close friends of someone in the leadership or the pastor and, and uh, being given a prominent uh, recognition within the church and all these kinds of things and it is flattery for gain. Verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. That little statement at the end is the exclamation marks at the end of the sentence. God is witness. Paul saying, it does not matter what anyone accuses us of. God is the witness of this. Paul honoured faithful workers and gave them praise when it was due, but he didn't stoop to uh, flattery, to win their trust or to win their uh, allegiance to him. And you can look up in Galatians 6 and John 8 and Acts 4 and see other examples of the same kind of thing. I want you to think of Paul secondly this morning as a in a parental role that Paul exercised. And that parental role has both the practices or the, or, or, or is he, Paul likens it to him being like a mother and then he also likens his parental role to being like a father. And we'll see them both in this passage. So chapter 2 verses 7 and 8, still in First Thessalonians. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. It seems a little odd that Paul would liken himself to being like a nursing mother. Um, But he's trying to draw into mind the tenderness and the care that he had for those people. He's not trying to give some kind of kooky Illustration, um, you know, we know that within what's called Christianity, there are some things that are messed up. You know, there was a, a revival happening, revival, and I use those, that word in, in, you know, it's in hidden quote marks and it's in italics, it's underlined, it's got lots of question marks after it, revival. There was a revival happening in South America where men were going to church and they were putting on nappies and they were being nursed by people because you have to come to the Lord as a child, right? Now, yes, exactly. I see someone beating her head over there, like, you know, like, that's insane. That is insane. And it's a spiritual deception as well. And so Paul says that we were like nursing mothers with you. He's not saying you have to be like nursed children, right? He's saying we were like nursing mothers. All he's trying to get them to do is consider how affectionate and caring he was for them. That's what he wants them to think of. It seems odd that he'd compare himself to a nursing mother, but not really. He's uh, in 1 Corinthians 4.14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. 
For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's saying, he calls them there his beloved children. So for Paul, it seems to me that a conversation between Paul and one of his disciples would not have been uh, like talking to a lawyer or talking to your tax agent. You know, that there would have been a depth of emotional connection that Paul had with those that he had led to Christ and nurtured in Christ Jesus, that he loved them. And just the fact that they were living for Jesus was such a thrill to his heart as a spiritual parent. Now, you and I here, there's many parents here, you know the burden that you've had in praying for your children and seeing them get saved, the joy that that brings in your life. And this is the kind of thing Paul, who was fatherless in the natural world, and yet he had, through the preaching of the gospel message, seen many children come to Christ. And he loved them. He states that he had begotten the Corinthian saints through the gospel. Again and again, the same message comes it's through the gospel. It's not through joining a church, not through adhering to a religious statement. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, 9 through 13, Paul then uses the image of a father, which we'll come to in just a moment. The main thought here, though, is this one of loving care, that Christians need love. They need food. They need tender care, just as a mother would give to her own children. Newborn babies need the milk of the word. And as they mature, they graduate on to meat. Got a couple of Samoan brothers here with us this morning. I tell you, man, they like to eat meat. They love eating meat. That's for that's not for newborns. You, as you mature, you get onto the meat. That's pretty good too. How a mother feeds her children is probably just as important as what she feeds them. A newborn is not just sat in a chair and given a bowl of milk. That's, that's not going to work. Well, the elements are there, aren't they? The milk is there. The baby's there. The mother's there. That's not going to work like that, though. A newborn is nurtured by the mother. And so these elements are important, and Paul says that that's what he did. And let's close with some thoughts here about his fatherhood of these, this church. Read with me from verse 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, from verse 9. Now this is straight after he's likened himself to being a, a nursing mother, like a, nurse, like a nursing mother. He doesn't say he was. He says, this is how I behave, like a nursing mother to you. And he's trying to highlight the tenderness to them. Verse 9, For you remember, brothers, our labour and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, now he says he's like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, a little digression here. I was reading a um, uh, a book Recently, it's it's called The Boy Crisis, I think it's called. 
um, something like that. And it talks about the, the rise of fatherlessness in Western societies and why it is that with the absence of fathers that children get involved in crime at higher rates and are uh, often more mentally and emotionally unstable than when there's a father in the home. And this is being written, been written and researched by a man who is a, you know, he's not a Christian. And so, but he just makes some observations from his extensive research. We're talking over 30 years, uh, maybe 40 years of research. And one of the things he said is that when you have small situations in a family with a mother and the child, so the child is eating dinner and, and the child reluctantly then says, can I have ice cream? And for the child, there's no recognition of any uh, um, delayed gratification. They don't think that they should wait. Can I have ice cream is just simply an, in, an, an interrogative demand. You know, it's, it's I want this now because this is going to taste good and I want that satisfaction now. And the mother will often say, and this is not all mothers, these are generalizations, so don't think that I was never like that. Mothers will often then start in a process of negotiation. And it kind of goes like, when you eat your peas. And the child says, I don't like peas. And the mother says, have at least a spoonful. And the child puts two or three peas on the spoon and eats those. And then the discussion's over and the child gets the ice cream. Where a father is very different, it's not such an emotional battle. The father says, when you eat your peas. And the child then starts to try and negotiate by putting a few peas on the spoon and the father says, no, when you eat your peas, I want you to eat up all the peas, finish them off, then you can have the ice cream. And what happens in that, and this is actually linked to um, big changes in ADD rates, which is very interesting, a child learns to focus on a task because that's how men are. Men are task-oriented. It's very simple for them. There's a way lot less emotion involved in the whole situation and where it's a negotiation with the mother and it's a task with the father, it's a very different situation. But the balance together is where it becomes really powerful. And that balance together is, is a really useful thing because then the fathers don't miss all of the emotional needs as well. So anyway, that's all a little bit of a sideline because Paul said to them, you know how, like a father, uh, for you know how, like a father was, uh, uh, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you. We gave you an exhortation and we encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul brings his focus to the exhortation and the charge and, and the encouragement to fatherly attributes. He says this is what, what men are like. That's what they're like. Men will say, do this, do that. And there's far less focus on the emotion because it's not about that. It's about the accomplishing of a task. Why? To glorify God in this. 
verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind. I mean, the, the letter to the Thessalonians is a really encouraging letter and in the middle of it, it's got this statement about the, how these Judeans were treated by the neighbouring Jews by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Now, that's a, that's an element of evil going on there. That somebody is trying to prevent the gospel going to the Gentiles because of a class separation that takes place. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. <laughs> Whew. Let's not let that be us. Within a few lines, Paul likens himself to both a mother and to a father. And his fatherly ministry is that he laboured. That's what men do. They work. He preached. He behaved himself. He exhorted. And he suffered. A father watches over his family and makes sacrifice for their welfare. Mothers do too. Yes, I know. I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying about what Paul says about his role as a father over these people. Because fathers should sacrifice. They should work for their family. They should labour to bring in supply for their spouse and their children. Modern philosophies state almost the opposite. Women sacrifice so much for their children, for their Families, not men. This is not true. Parents sacrifice for their children. A good man will sacrifice for his spouse because he will love as Christ loved. And what does Paul say? Who gave himself for the church. So a good man will give himself And ladies, if you think you're interested in a man, if he won't sacrifice of himself for you, run a long way before you get deeply committed. People say things like, it's women who love, not men. This is not true. These philosophies are worldly philosophies. And it's not true. I'm not saying women don't love. I'm saying they both should. They both should. In Titus, Paul writes and he says, let the older women teach the younger women how to love their husbands. If they knew how to do it automatically, why would they need some teaching? If men knew how to love properly, why would Paul need to write Ephesians? Don't get sucked into these kinds of philosophies about men and women and this modern psychology and all this kind of stuff. Parents are called to sacrifice. Parents, plural, mum and dad. 
That's, that's a biblical home, a mother and a father. They are called. One is female gender, one is male gender. They're the two genders available in the spectrum. Spectrum is not very wide. It goes from point A to point B or point XX to point XY. That's what it goes from, right? It is male and female. That's the spectrum. Mother and father who are to sacrifice for their children. That's what it's supposed to be. We are called to sacrifice and love. And Paul showed that to this church. And as I I close here, I want you to think about this thought that children are great imitators. Um, Paul says, For you brothers became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, uh, for you suffered the same things from your countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now, my neighbour, who lives over the road, um, they got a little toddler and he's... He's just, he's very cute and very funny, you know, and he loves trucks. Uh, we had a truck arrive with 14 metres of soil last week and at, at 7.30 in the morning, his mum and dad's window, the curtain is back and he watched the whole thing with the truck arriving and delivering the soil. Then later, he's got his little work boots on and he's out there with his dad who's building a deck. And that was interesting because later on I went over to see the deck that his dad's building and uh, I said, your, your son's so funny, man, because when he walks around and he's got his wheelbarrow, the son runs after his dad, following him everywhere. It's, it's really good to see, really good to see. Anyway, he said, he said, it's hilarious because him and his mate were out the back and they're building this deck and they were doing some two-person lifts on things. And the son saw that. And so he sees a bit of two before and it's only a couple of feet long. And he says, Dad, can you help me? And he had to do the two-person lift then and carry this, you know, and get his dad on one end and him on the other end doing this two-person lift with uh, with this big thing, right? Which is just, it's just great. Like, that's great. That's how it should be with dads and their sons. They, these are the things dads need to teach their sons. And, uh, you know, it's, it's such a good thing. So this little sawn-off piece of wood. Children are great imitators. And that's what Paul said about these brothers and sisters at Thessalonica. You're imitating other believers who've gone before you. They were persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ and so you have been and so you've grown likewise just as they did. You've grown in the same manner. So uh, it's important for us to be spiritual fathers and mothers to people, it's important for us to be involved in evangelizing, but not just let it stop with the spread of the gospel. That's the first part of our work. That God would bring fruit into our lives and that you and I would then disciple that fruit. Go into all the world and make disciples of all men. The command is not just the spread of the gospel, it's the making of disciples. So, Praise God, we, we have a lot more in this chapter to go through, but we shall stop it right there um, this morning and uh, without going any further. It's a really wonderful, uh, wonderful passage, this second, uh, First Thessalonians. And children are, they're great imitators and... Um, So should believers be as well. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.